a moment ago, I'd like you to take your Bibles now, if you would, and turn to 2 Thessalonians, 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, and I'm going to read this chapter before we, uh, as we continue this morning, 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. We, when we gather together, we sing, we read, we pray, and uh, we look into God's Word, and we're going to read again 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 uh, this morning uh, before we continue. 2 Thessalonians 1, this is what Paul writes, Paul and his partners, Paul, Silas, and Timothy. Paul, Silas, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians, in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace and peace to you from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We ought always to thank God for you, brothers and sisters, and rightly so, because your faith is growing more and more, and the love all of you have for one another is increasing. Therefore, among God's churches, we boast about your perseverance and faith in all the persecutions and trials you are enduring. All this is evidence that God's judgment is right. And as a result, you will be counted worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are suffering. God is just. He will pay back trouble to those who trouble you and give relief to you who are troubled and to us as well. This will happen when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven in blazing fire with his powerful angels. He will punish those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will be punished with everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. On the day he comes to be glorified in his holy people and to be marveled at among all those who have believed. This includes you, because you believed our testimony to you. With this in mind, we constantly pray for you that our God may make you worthy of his calling and that by his power he may bring to fruition your every desire for goodness and your every deed prompted by faith. We pray this so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, the next time you pick up your newspaper, the next time you scroll to your favorite uh, news site online, I want you to look with a particular lens. I want you to read the headlines and scan the stories with the idea of looking for stories about justice. Where do you see the issues of justice in the newspaper or on the news? Um, if you read the news, if you read the news or saw the news this week, uh, the main story that would attract your attention, I imagine, would be about the shootings in Tulsa and Charlotte, and then the riots in North Carolina. It's frustrating. It's aggravating to read about how what began as a concern over justice has turned into this terrible violence. H- how it makes sense to burn your neighborhood down when you're frustrated. But, but remember that, that, that justice was the prompting issue, their concern about justice. Uh, it's, it's not just people in, in uh, uh, that end of the political spectrum that are concerned about justice. Maybe uh, you're on the other end and you're wondering why Hillary Clinton wasn't indicted. No justice, right? Uh, You might have seen this week an article in the newspaper about how the president vetoed a law uh, that would allow uh, victims of 9-11, their families, to sue the government of Saudi Arabia. They want justice. There are uh, 1,850 rape test kits in Pennsylvania that are untested from 2015. Victims 
wanting justice and the forensic department has, is this far behind. Maybe you saw a news story this week I did about Bill, of Bill Cosby going into a courtroom again. There are women who are seeking justice. There's a lot of uh, confusion about justice. Uh, the price of EpiPens is up 400%. We used to have three or four of them in our house. We don't anymore. Uh, but is it, is it a matter of justice that they have gone up so much in price? Some people argue, argue that it is. Uh, maybe you've heard of a new role in society that you can play. You can be a social justice warrior, an SJW. College campuses multiply them like weeds, social justice warriors. They, they seem to find injustice everywhere. There was a new study that I read about that argued that there's just vast injustice in American sports. It is... Um, um, reaffirming the cisgender binary. You have to go to grad school to talk like that. It's re and, uh, reinforcing the cisgender binary in sports because of the injustice that when boys' teams play sports teams, the boys generally win. And that's just not justice. Grad school. Uh, I spent some time recently on a website uh, uh, called uh, the International Justice Mission. It's an organization, the International Justice Mission. It's a group of lawyers, social workers, investigators. They work primarily in the third world. And what this group is doing, it's a Christian organization, and they serve Christ by trying to rescue people and advocate people in the third world who are victims of slavery or sex trafficking or police brutality or property grabbing. Uh, all over the world, people are crying out for justice. We want we demand justice. Now, the Bible is not ignorant of this, this cry. In fact, the Bible speaks to it. Listen to Ecclesiastes 4.1. It says, Again, I looked and saw all the oppression that was taking place under the sun. All this oppression. I saw the tears of the oppressed, and they have no comforter. Power was on the side of their oppressors, and they have no comforter. Or Proverbs 10.23, listen to this. An unplowed field produces food for the poor. There's enough food there for them, but injustice sweeps it away. Or Proverbs 31.8-9, if you're a wise person, this is what you should do. You should speak up for those who cannot speak for themselves, for the rights of all who are destitute. Speak up and judge fairly. Defend the rights of the poor and needy. We have this morning before us a passage about justice. But this passage is about perfect and ultimate justice. And, and at first glance, as we look at it, it's justice that sometimes goes beyond what we expect. And perhaps there's justice in here that goes beyond what we think we deserve. This is about God's justice. That's what we're going to talk about today. And I want to ask and answer four questions about God's justice that arise in this text. There are questions that you might have, and they also might prompt some objections that you might have that I want to talk about to do today too as we go through this. First question we're going to ask and answer is why? Why does God enact justice? Then we're going to talk about uh, 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 when. When will God enact justice? Then we're going to talk about a who, who will enact God's justice. And finally, we're going to talk about what will God's justice bring. The why and the when and the who and the what 
of God's justice. That's our plan set out before us this morning. Let's begin with the why. Why does God enact justice? There's two reasons provided for us in this text. But before we even look at them, I want to remind you that when the Bible uses words to talk about God's justice, and it uses words like anger, fury, wrath, punishment, they are all accurate about who God is, but they are quite a bit different than human justice. Human justice is limited. Human justice is imperfect. Human justice is sometimes grievously flawed. Uh, occasionally, oh, every three or four months or so, I'll see an article in the newspaper about a Nazi war criminal that has been found. Some 95-year-old man. They find him hiding somewhere, and they put him on trial. And he's brought to trial for his complicity as a security guard at a concentration camp in the death of 8,000 people. And the evidence is presented. He is uh, convicted and then sentenced to a hundred life sentences. How, when you're 95, is that even possible? Human justice is limited. It's imperfect. Sometimes it's flawed. But God's justice, there are no flaws in God's justice. Second Thessalonians doesn't say what it says because occasionally God has a flare-up or a temper tantrum that occasionally somebody's going to get in trouble. Like, you know, your parents have these moments. Stay away from mom. She's a little angry today. It's not God at all. His justice is measured. It is wise. It is perfect. It is righteous. He never wrongly convicts anyone and all of his evidence is complete and untainted and every punishment fits the crime perfectly. Now remember, 2 Thessalonians was written to a church that is being persecuted. This ancient Macedonian uh, church in uh, the city of Thessalonica. Paul had been with them for a few months. He'd been chased out of town. And then the persecution that had chased him out of town has fallen on them. Verse 4 talks about their persecutions, their trials. I don't know what persecution they're experiencing in Thessalonica. I know one of the members of the church had been fined. Um, in, in the book of Acts, Paul is beaten sometimes and imprisoned and forced out of cities. The book of Hebrews talks about how some followers of Jesus have been put in prison, and when they were in prison and other believers came to visit them, those other believers came maybe to bring them food and comfort and encouragement in prison. When they went home, they found that their property had been confiscated because they were visiting Christians in prison. Imagine this. You come home and your house is empty. Uh, the door is hanging off the hinges People have just come in and looted your house because you went to visit your fellow brother or sister in prison. I don't know if that's what's happening in Thessalonica, but they're being persecuted in some way. And and here we have, Paul is writing about them to comfort them, saying to them that God exercises justice to defend the oppressed. This is what God does. Why does God enact justice? Reason number one, to defend the oppressed. Paul wants to encourage them. This is how he did it. Verse 6, God is just. He will pay back trouble to those who trouble you and give relief to you who are troubled and to us as well. This instance, God is defending the Thessalonians and he's going to do it. It's going to be an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. It's going to be trouble for trouble. God's going to do this. God is the defender of the defenseless. 
It, we find this in other passages of the Bible. I'm going to read a couple of them to you. Listen to Deuteronomy 17, 18. Listen to what it says. 17 and 18. Deuteronomy 10, 17 and 18. For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great God, mighty and awesome, who shows no partiality and accepts no bribes. He defends the cause of the fatherless and the widow and loves the foreigner residing among you, giving them food and clothing. God shows no partiality. He defends the defenseless. Or Proverbs 23, 10 and 11. Listen to this. Do not move an ancient boundary stone or encroach on the fields of the fatherless for their defender, God, is strong. He will take up their case against you. God's defense of the defenseless is what drove the prophets often to speak, to prophesy in the nation that God watches out for the orphans and the poor and the widows. God defends the defenseless. He defends the afflicted, the poor, the persecuted, the abused, the falsely imprisoned, the victimized. There is divine justice for those men and women and children. You should remember that because I imagine when you read passages like 2 Thessalonians 1, you're tempted a bit to recoil. This is harsh language. But what I am announcing to you today, brothers and sisters, is good news. It's good news. I have said this before. It is good news for those who are suffering and those who have been abused and those have been, that have been hurt. This is good news that God visits justice on the abusers and the victimizers. Maybe if, if there's, to the extent that you struggle with this or don't see that as good news, Maybe it's a sign in your life that you haven't really suffered very much. Or a sign that you're not yet willing to put yourself in the place of those who have. God defends the oppressed. Now if the text, if that was all the text has said, we would rest a bit easier. But actually the text goes on. Why does God enact justice? Another reason to defend the oppressed. Secondly, also though, to punish the disobedient. To punish the disobedient. Look with me again at verse 8. Look what it says. He will punish those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. There's two phrases in this passage. They're in parallel. They both mean the same thing. Now the first phrase in this passage is, this verse is, those who do not know God. Now the word know here is not a reference to their ignorance or not having the facts. The word know here refers to willful blindness to the facts. They, they can know, but they refuse to know. Uh, Paul writes about this in Romans 1. Again, listen to what it says. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness since what may be known about God is plain to them. Because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen being understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse. Evidence is everywhere. And we don't want to look at it. For although they knew God, Paul says, they neither glorified Him as God nor gave thanks to Him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. They knew the truth, but they suppressed it. That's what Paul's talking about here. You know, you know what he means because you know what this word know means in the text. I'll give you an example of this. Don't raise your hands, but how many of you know that it is dangerous to text and drive? 
How many of you know that that is dangerous? Okay, now I do want you to raise your hand. How many of you... No, I don't. How many of you do it, though? You know it's dangerous, but you do it anyway. You are willfully blind. That or uh, you don't care or... This is... We're just talking about texting. You're so arrogant, you don't think that the rules apply to you. They know God but they don't know him, right? Now, parallel to that phrase, actually, one, one more verse I want to refer to before we go on. John writes about this type of knowledge in John seventeen three. Let me read it to you. Now, this is eternal life that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Knowing God is having eternal life. Okay, so the punishment is coming first to those who do not know God, but parallel to that, he, he, he uses this phrase, and who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. The word gospel means good news. What does it mean to obey good news? To obey good news means to believe it. Paul is writing here about those who do not believe what the Bible says about the death and life and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That he's the Savior, that he's the one who reconciles us to God. We are naturally in a state of rebellion against God, but Jesus has come. He lived the life we could not have lived. He died the death we deserve to die, and he rose again from the dead. On the cross, he paid the penalty for our sins. And, and that message is to be the object of our faith, our hope, our confidence. And, and when you believe that message, God gives you life and forgiveness. If you do not believe that message you meet the criteria of verse 8 and thus will experience what verse 9 says, everlasting destruction. We read just a few minutes ago from Revelation 20. Consignment to the lake of fire where you will be tormented day and night forever and ever. There's gentler ways, I'm sure, to break that news to you, but this is clearly what the text says. And there's some objections. Maybe you have objections that are starting to form in your mind. Here's some that I hear. Maybe you want to raise the objection about love. This does not sound very loving for God to send people to a place of eternal, everlasting destruction. Doesn't the Bible say that God loves people? I have a friend who's a pastor. She is a pastor in the Midwest. The denomination is different than ours. And she was recently preaching on hell. And she put a message on Facebook about it. And uh, her friends, some of her church members, were commenting on it. And, and they were writing in there and they said, the God I know, the God I believe in doesn't send people to hell. He's too loving for that. You ever heard anybody raise that issue? The problem with eliminating hell in order to uphold God's love is actually that you diminish God's love. You don't exalt God's love. Let me explain that here. You could say, you know, the God that I worship is so loving that he would never send anybody to hell. So I will ask you this question then. What did it cost your God to love you? What what price does God's love come for you? Um, clearly, since justice doesn't play a role in it, and, and so uh, uh, eternal punishment is not a role in, ha- in how God loves you, then Jesus' death on the cross in which he experienced hellish torments for us doesn't matter. So what does it cost God to love you? 
You see, because the Bible tells us that God demonstrates his love for us. It tells us that he shows his love and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Why did Christ die? Because we're sinners deserving God's wrath. But God so loved us that he sent his one and only son that whoever believes in him will not, have, uh, it will not perish but have everlasting life. Jesus endured hellish torments on the cross. It's a demonstration, a glaring sign of God's love. If hellish torment is not necessary in the world that the God you worship made, what, how do you know that God loves you? You diminish God's justice. You do not exalt his love. You diminish his love. There's another objection, though, that you might have. Maybe it wouldn't be about love. Maybe it would be about fairness. Fairness. Is it really fair for God? How is it fair for God to consign people to eternal torment for one lifetime of disobedience? How is it fair? How does the punishment fit the crime that, that if I live for 75 years and don't know God and don't obey the gospel of Jesus Christ, how is that fair that then that would be followed by 75 million ages of years? How is that fair? Related to that objection is that there may be a hell, but I don't know anybody who's bad enough to deserve to go there. Uh, they did a survey, this is a little old, in 2003, they asked Americans about heaven and hell. 63% of Americans expect to go to heaven when they die. 1% expect to go to hell. That's what the Bible teaches here, fair? And there's a number of answers to that question. You can answer that question in a number of ways. The first one that, that comes to mind is, is probably the most palatable. This is the most acceptable, I guess. Uh, this is C.S. Lewis's favorite way to talk about hell. It, it's biblical. It's also the most palatable. He said, everlasting destruction is the culmination of a lifetime of wanting independence from God. You want independence from God? You're getting exactly what you want, eternal separation from God. This is sometimes referred to as God's passive wrath, his passive wrath. God is giving you what you want. Uh, listen to what Lewis said. There are only two kinds of people in the end. Those who say to God, thy will be done, and those to whom God says in the end, thy will be done. All that are in hell, choose it. Without that self-choice, there could be no hell. No soul that seriously and constantly desires joy will ever miss it. Those who seek, find. Those who knock, it is opened. If you say in your lifetime, I don't want God, I don't want his authority, I don't want his presence, I don't want his commands, I don't want to have anything to do with him, you set yourself on the path of eternal destruction where you will experience life without him at all, without any of his kindness, any of his goodness, any of his blessings. If you don't want God, eternal destruction is what life without God looks like. If you run out of the house and it's January and you're mad at your parents and you don't want to be anywhere near your parents and you run out of their house, guess what? The heat stays inside with them. You're, you're leaving all the benefits that are in their house if you can't stand, stand to be with them. Don't want God. Fine. Here's what life without God looks like. Eternal destruction. That's an answer to the fairness question, and it's one that's in the Bible. Romans 1 talks about how God gives us up to our desires. I think, though, there's a better answer, not a more biblical answer, but 
probably a more central answer to that fairness question. This is not as palatable to the natural mind. This answer is troubling to people because it indicates that you're not at the center of the universe. And that's not generally a message that we want to hear very often. When people raise objections about fairness, what they are actually doing is they are diminishing two things. One, the infinite worth of God. And secondly, they're diminishing the damage of their own sin. God is infinitely worthy of our love and devotion. He is infinitely worthy of our worship. And when we refuse to give it to him, we have become infinitely guilty. Your sin merits infinite torment because it is rebellion against an infinite God. You can understand this without much difficulty. Uh, let's imagine that I, that I get mad at one of our ushers some Sunday morning. We have a fine group of men and women who ush in our church, so I get mad at the ushers, uh, one of them. And uh, I'm angry at one of our burliest, manliest ushers because he didn't give me a bulletin fast enough. So I'm angry and I swing my fist and I hit him. Um, You'd be surprised. You'd... Maybe be worried, you'd be confused. He wouldn't be heard very much, let's be honest. But, but it, would be, it would be puzzling to you. You'd be puzzled. Now let's go in a completely different direction for a minute. Imagine that I went to the nursery and I got mad at a baby. And I hit a baby in our nursery as hard as I could. You wouldn't be puzzled. You wouldn't, you wouldn't be amused. You would be horrified. And, and rightly so. You should be. People who hit babies deserve to be thrown in deep, dark pits with the keys thrown away. Right? Why? Because babies are, are defenseless. You have, a, you have this certain, they are deserving, they are worthy of greater gentleness and care and love. Striking them is repugnant. It's it's horrible to think about. Sin is horrible, not because God is weak and unable to defend himself, but because he is holy. He is infinitely worthy. To argue about fairness is to ignore his infinite holiness, his infinite worth, his infinite greatness. To disobey him and to disbelieve in his son is an offense of horrific proportions, and demands justice. Now as an aside here, the infinite worthiness of God and my infinite ex- uh, offense against him explains by only the infinite son could be the substitute on the cross. Why did it have to be the God-man who would die for us? Why didn't God send just an angel to die for us? That would have been easier, I would think, Right? On the cross, hanging for six hours, Jesus paid the penalty I owed. How can that be? The infinite Son bore the infinite wrath of the infinite God to pay my infinite offense. That's costly love, and it is perfect justice. Now that's what the passage teaches about why God enacts justice. We need to move on. We need to pick up the pace. Second question. When will God enact justice? Justice. Justice. When? 
The passage is is clearly future-oriented. He's speaking here about the day of the Lord. He's describing, more specifically, we talk about the second coming of Jesus. The day that he comes back, verse 7, says, This will happen when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven in blazing fire with his powerful angels. Verse 10 says, On the day that he comes... Uh, The word translated revealed is in verse 7, and it's the Greek word apocalypsis. Uh, We use the word apocalypse to talk about the the end times. Well, the word apocalypsis just means unveiling. Jesus is now hidden. Not every eye can see Jesus right now, but someday he's going to be revealed. And when he is revealed, this is what's going to happen. He's going to enact justice. We are moving inexorably toward that day. Whereas we move through Second Thessalonians, we're going to talk a little bit more about the when. We'll come to that. That's the, the topic really in chapter 2 a little bit more. So we'll come back to that. His perfect justice, his perfect ultimate justice, though, is still yet to come. Now, third question, who will enact God's justice? Who will enact God's justice? The short answer, of course, is the Lord Jesus himself. Verse 8 he will punish those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel. Well, now, who's the he? The last person he mentions is the Lord Jesus. Verse 7. The Lord Jesus is the one who is going to come and enact God's justice. Now, notice here, there's three prepositions in verse, um, uh, verse 7 that describe Jesus' coming, and they all point to his authority to do this. He will appear when he's revealed, first one, from heaven. He's going to come from heaven. This is where he comes from, the place in creation where God chooses to make his presence especially felt, and it's the seat of the power of the universe. It's where Jesus ascended to. It's where he is now. It's where he's coming from. If, if there were some sort of international emergency and you were wondering what was happening and you turned on the news and a reporter came out and said, I have just come from the White House. That reporter, she's introducing what she's saying that way to indicate to you that what she's saying is authoritative because in the White House you're supposed to know what's going on. I have just come from the White House and I'm going to tell you what's going on and what you should do. Jesus is coming from heaven, the seat of the power of the universe. He is coming, your translation might have a different order, but mine says next, in blazing fire. In blazing fire. All the way through the Bible, when, it, the, when fire appears, it's a sign of God's presence, and it's a sign of his presence and authority to judge. Exodus 19, God descends from heaven to Mount Sinai, and he comes in fire. In Daniel chapter 7, verses 9 and 10, Daniel has a vision of the Ancient of Days who's come to judge the nations, and he comes on his fiery throne from heaven in blazing fire with his powerful angels. Last one, it says, with his powerful angels. Jesus mentioned angels often when he talked about his second coming. Here's one example, Matthew 25:31. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, he will sit on his glorious throne. Angels are his servants. They come to do his bidding and to carry out his justice. He, he, the Lord Jesus will punish. Now, I wonder, do you remember when we were in the book of Hosea and I was talking about how 
uh, familiarity with other parts of the Bible and uh, enables you to read the rest of the Bible more easily. You begin to notice patterns or repeated phrases. Or I would not have noticed this myself. Uh, it probably comes because I have a lack of familiarity with the Greek Old Testament. <laughs> The Old Testament was written originally in Hebrew. It was translated into Greek. And, and the Greek Old Testament uh, was the Bible of Paul's church. This is, that's the Bible they read. It's the, the Bible the Thessalonians would have used, the Greek Old Testament. And there are, in this First Thessalonians chapter 1, a number of allusions back to the Greek Old Testament. Paul is, is referring back to all these passages that talk about the day of the Lord and God's judgment that's coming. Um, some people so much so think that, that Paul did this that, so much that Paul must have had a source book maybe of, of verses. You ever seen those little books or charts? They say, when you're sorry, when you're in sorrow, read you know, John 14, Psalm 23, Psalm 51. When, when you need comfort, read. Paul maybe had, some people think that Paul had one of those, when you're writing about the day of the Lord, you know, read these verses, maybe. I, I don't know. But look, I wrote some verses down. It's not as easy to see in English translation, but I'll, I'll point it out to you. Um, Isaiah 66, 15 and 16, look at it. It says, See the Lord is coming with fire. There's fire. And his chariots are like a whirlwind. He will bring down his anger with fury and his rebuke with flames of fire. For with fire and with his sword, the Lord will execute judgment. That word execute judgment is the same word that's in verse 6. He will pay back. He will pay back. He'll execute judgment on all people, and many will be those slain by the Lord. Or Isaiah 2.10, look what it says. Go into the rocks, hide in the ground from the fearful presence of the Lord and the splendor of his majesty. Verse 9 says that people will be shut out from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. The splendor of his majesty, glory of his might, those two things, same thing. Psalm 89.7, in the council of his holy ones, God is greatly feared. He is more awesome than all who surround him. Now the English, uh, it could say he is glorified in the company of his saints. Verse 10 says, Jesus is coming to be glorified in his holy people. Now I point this out to you for two reasons. The first reason I want you to see this is because I want you to see how the New Testament takes very easily passages in the Old Testament that apply specifically to God and very clearly speak about Jesus using those same terms. The early writers of the New Testament, from the very beginning, they affirmed the deity of the Lord Jesus Christ. They took these passages about God in the Old Testament and applied them with ease to Jesus in the New Testament. The second reason that I want you to see that is Maybe this changes the image of Jesus that you have. He is not just meek and mild. He's not just timid and gentile. Gentle. He wasn't a Gentile at all. <laughs> Tim Keller says that one of the reasons that it's important to talk about hell is because Jesus talked about hell more than anybody else in the New Testament combined. All, if you took all of them and combined it, Jesus still spoke about hell more. He warned people repeatedly. Listen to Matthew 10, 28. This is a good verse. Jesus said, Do not be afraid of those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather be afraid of the one who, cannot, who can destroy both soul and body and hell. That's what Jesus said. You should be afraid of the person who can throw you into hell. And who is the one who's going to throw people into hell? It will be the Lord Jesus himself. Now there's one more question that we need to ask and answer this morning. What will God's justice bring? Uh, we have seen it already. Verse 9, they will be punished 
with everlasting destruction. Everlasting destruction. Ruin. Not annihilation. The Bible never teaches that God is going to annihilate anyone. It, it, it is. A, the word everlasting should tell us that. Eternal destruction. Ruination that goes on and on and on and on. In some ways, Paul seems to be contrasting eternal destruction with eternal life. That's the promise for those who believe. Eternal destruction, eternal life. Eternal destruction, apart from the presence of God, experiencing His wrath. Eternal life with God and all of His blessings. Those two things contrasted here. Here are some of the ways that Jesus described hell. In Matthew, he called it eternal fire. In Mark, the word he used to describe hell most often was the word Gehenna. Gehenna was a valley outside the city of Jerusalem. It was the Jerusalem city dump. You throw your garbage in Gehenna. And uh, you also, that's where they threw the bodies of those who didn't have any relatives to bury them. Threw them in the dump. There's always a fire burning there because there was always a constant supply of fuel for the fire. Jesus said, In Gehenna, it is the place where the worms that eat do not die and the fire is not quenched. Worms. What's he talking about? He's talking about maggots and worms that eat decomposing bodies. And normally, those maggots, of course, they would eat decomposing bodies, and when the, the bodies of the dead are gone, the maggots died. But in hell, Jesus says, the maggots never, ever die. This, the decomposition goes on forever and ever and ever. Jesus said that hell is like outer darkness. Jude said it is the blackest darkness. Revelation described it in terms of a fiery lake of burning sulfur. The horror, the horror of this is that it is the absolute reverse of the infinite worthiness of God. This is how glorious and splendid he is. It's a contrast with this horror. There's a moment in the book of Revelation where God is unfolding for John what's going to happen in the days that are to come when his wrath is poured out. In Revelation chapter 8, there's this moment where silence descends on heaven. 30 minutes, the text says. There hasn't been silence in heaven very much in the book of Revelation. There's been a lot of singing and shouting and crying out to God for justice. But there's this moment where the, where the people there see what God is going to do. They see his wrath that's going to be poured out and how it's going to come. So powerful, so weighty that there is silence before God. Eternal destruction torment that never ends and never eases. I have stood at the head of caskets of men and women that to the best of my knowledge, I'm fairly certain this was their destiny. Some of them have been your relatives. Eternal destruction. Did you notice in verse 7 there's a little phrase we should think about? It says, verse 7, and give relief to you who are troubled, and there's this phrase, and to us as well. Paul's including himself in this, in this relief 
that he's going that is going to happen. Paul has been suffering. He's going to get relief. Next week we're going to talk about relief. This is what Paul's expecting here. And what's interesting to me about it is he's writing to the Thessalonians about their persecutors. You're going to get relief from your persecutors and, and they're going to get trouble from God. And you know what? Paul used to be one of those persecutors. He used to be one of those people who would throw Christians in jail and arrange their, uh, their uh, executions and separate parents from their children. That's what Paul did. He knows this full well what he deserves, and yet he is claiming in this moment relief, that he's going to get relief. Why is that? Because the Apostle Paul moved from rebellion against God to trust in him, to turn to Jesus for relief, for forgiveness and life. Oh, that would be true of us, of all of us here. Let's pray, shall we? Father, we come before you this morning and this is a grim and grievous warning. Lord, we confess to you that uh, it, it sits sometimes easily upon us because we are among those who diminish your infinite worth and we, we diminish the, the weight of our sin against you. We are among those people Lord, we, we would rightly come before you with gratitude for the rescue that you have wrought to us through Jesus Christ. That you prove how much you love us and that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. And we are thankful to you for, this morning we can think of parents or Sunday school teachers or pastors or friends who told us about the good news of who Jesus is and what he has done. At the same time, Lord, we think um, grievously of this word, this prophecy and statement of the, the Apostle Paul, eternal destruction to those who do not believe the good news. Father, we can think of uh, friends and loved ones, people that we know, and it is grievous to us. I pray that in our congregation we would feel the weight of this as, as it should, that it would, that it would uh, be grievous and heavy to us, even as we think about the glory that is to come. I want you to keep your heads bowed and your eyes closed for, for just a moment this morning. Uh, if you're here today and you're not a follower of Jesus Christ, you've never turned to him and trusted in him for your forgiveness and life, oh, friend, today would be a very good day for you to do that. The Bible is not light to us when it speaks of eternal destruction. Oh, I would plead with you, to turn and trust in Christ. Uh, at the end of our service, I'll, I'll be down here at the front. I'd love to talk to you about it. I, I will gladly talk to you more about this, what this means. 
Father, we are thankful to you that we are among those with Paul who say, and to us, and to us relief because of Jesus Christ. It is in his name that we pray these things together saying, Amen.